Shooting Broadcast, a fascinating round in three, two, one. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Hello, Fascination. Welcome to the show. Now, today's episode is really cool because it is rooted in serendipity. Now, a cynic will tell you that serendipity is just luck with meaning behind it, but I refuse to accept that as an answer because the coincidences are too important, too numerous to ignore. What am I talking about? Well, you remember last week I did an episode with George Pendle on the First rocket scientist, Jack Parsons. Now, Jack's whole history is very interesting, but one-third of his entire background is this occult leanings, these these, uh, mystical beliefs that he had. And while we touched upon it in our interview, we only have an hour, man. I can't get to everything. So we didn't quite give it the due that I believe that we should have. Well, luckily... Who comes into town the next week but Mitch Horowitz, mystical Mitch Horowitz. He's in town promoting uh, two lectures that he did at the Manly P. Hall uh, University for Philosophical Research right here in Los Angeles. And I was able to put together a quick interview. We raced over there and were able to film a conversation that I had with him about Jack Parsons. Now, we filmed this to be on YouTube to do a couple little snippets, but he and I ended up talking for quite a bit, and so uh, I just thought the conversation was too good not to use as an episode. It's great supplemental material for the background of Jack Parsons, and plus we get into lots of other stuff that he and I didn't hit on in our first interview together. So I've put that, that's this week's episode. Now, because of the quick nature, the quick turnaround, I could not record this with professional-level audio equipment, so you'll notice the room sounds a little hollow. My apologies, we'll be returning to our top-level audio production next week. But in the meantime, sit back and listen to my interview with Mitch Horowitz. Uh, I've been a fan of yours forever. Very excited about this. Um, so, the man I'm sitting next to, uh, what do you like? Do you want you want to be known as Mystical Mitch? Do you want to be Mitch the Magical Mystic? Or do you want the one-man mystical experience, which stands for Tommy, T-O-M-M-E? What do you like? Uh, well, usually, Mitch Horowitz, a historian of alternative spirituality. That's the way I roll. <laughs> I like Mystical Mitch. Is that cool? That's totally fine with me, too. I'm going to call you. All right. Double All right. M. So we are actually, this is exciting, because we talked about the Manly P. Hall Center. Yes. Uh, University for Phil- Philosophical Research. Research. We're here. We're in Manly P. Hall's office, this right? His office. This is so cool. Yeah. Uh, and so in case you missed our interview, which you shouldn't do, this is a supplement. You can't just rely on this interview alone. Listen to all the stuff we talked about. Uh, what is the what is the uh, significance of Manly P. Hall? Manly P. Hall was an occult scholar who was born in Canada in uh, 1901. Spent most of his career writing, studying, speaking here in Los Angeles. And he really preserved the study of the occult, mythology, esoterica, at times when modern society seemed ready to move on from those things. Mm -hmm. And during periods of time when people were ready to conscript occult ideologies and hermeticism and ancient Egyptian thought just to museum cases, Manley came forward and said, these things are living philosophies that still hold value for serious searching 
men and women today. Right. And he fought a one-man battle, which he won, right. to keep occult studies from just being relegated to something that you put behind a glass museum case right. as some sort of oddity that we look at and then we move on. Right. But he revived occult studies, not only as the study of the past, but as the study of ideas that are practical, useful, applicable in the present. And he died in 1990 in West Hollywood. So the place we're sitting in is actually, it's quite of like a reservoir of information. In yes, way, right? absolutely. What is the library like here? The library is monumental. There's probably no other library like it in the United States. Wow. It's tens of thousands of volumes of occult lore, mythology, Pythagorean mathematics, books on the... Pythagorean mathematics? Yes, sir. <laughs> and he really makes it very, very accessible. In fact, Manley's chapter on Pythagorean mathematics in his great book, The Secret Teachings of All Ages, right. is exquisitely accessible <laughs> and available to people. It sounds like something that's so far away. Yeah, but yeah. Manley had a gift for taking esoteric ideas and complex philosophies and cutting right to their basics, cutting right to their basics mm -hmm. so that any searching curious person can enter these ideas. The library is monumental. There's probably few other modern libraries in the world that have so many books of alchemy, the occult, mysticism, esotericism. It's just a boundless adventure land. Wow, you love this library. I do, and I love this place, and I love this man. He was a, uh, the, the, probably the single greatest influence on me. I never met him yeah. because he died in 1990. I was living in New York City. I hadn't connected with occult yeah. studies yet, but I'll never forget. I was having lunch with a group of friends and I was just getting into my own studies into esotericism and the occult and I said to a friend of mine, who should I be reading? Who should I be grokking to? Yeah. And her name was Pythia Pei. And Pythia was <laughs> no, actually, person, Pythia. Yes, Pythia. Pythia, which which means Pythonus or, or female serpent. Oh, I know what Pythia means. Yes, of course. Of course. And uh, was also the name given to the Oracle of Delphi. So my modern Oracle of oh, Delphi, cool. Pythia, said to me, you have to get into Manly P. Hall. And as soon as I heard that stately name, yeah. it was like a light went on and I said, what is this? Yeah. What is this? And I began studying Manley's life and reading his books and it set me on the path I'm on today. Well, it's funny because, not to be confused with Monty Hall, who's a very different individual. Also a mysterious, <laughs> important figure in the study of the occult. Probably so. Right, but, right. Very similar. He did live here in L.A., didn't he? So yeah. Chances yeah. are he was probably a Rosicrucian and a Druid. <laughs> right. you know, of course. And a damn good game show host. Yeah, the best, arguably. arguably. Uh, so one of the things I want to ask you that's kind of cool, I noticed you have lots of tattoos. Oh, yeah. yeah. So I've always had, so I don't have any tattoos, and the reason is, is if I want to have them, they got to have meaning and purpose. Oh yeah. So do yours have meaning and purpose and have a follow-up? Every one of them, absolutely. This one, for example, is Yod, Hey, Vav, Hey, the Hebrew name for God, oh. and it is actually um, the frontispiece to a tarot deck that Manly Hall and his collaborator Augustus Knapp designed and published in 1929, yeah. called the Hall Knapp Tarot. And in Jewish tradition, it said that if you could figure out how to pronounce the name of God, yod Hey vav Hey, you would gain all power. But the name is unpronounceable. We call it by different terms, you know, yeah. Adonai and Yahweh, but no one really knows how to pronounce it. So every one of these tattoos has meaning. This is Neville Goddard, who's one of my 
philosophical heroes. Neville also lived in Los Angeles. He was a mystical philosopher who died in 1972, and he had one basic teaching, which is that your imagination is God, that everything you and your viewers are experiencing right now is rooted in the mind and the imagination. There's no niche here. Right. I'm rooted in you as you are ultimately rooted in God. This is right. all your creation. There's no manly hall office around us. There's no Mitch speaking. Right. This is your creation. Your imagination is God the creator. So that was Neville's philosophy. Wow. And of course we have Buddy Holly, which I don't need to introduce you. And flying saucers, <laughs> pyramid of Giza, Sasquatch. I just asked somebody to design this for me one day. <laughs> 33, the year of Christ's death. All kinds of things going on here, all meaningful. So what's kind of interesting about that is I've always often thought that if I was going to do something like this, yes, that all have to have meanings. But I have this weird idea yeah. of having like a tableau of all protective symbols okay. to protect you against all kinds of things, and also to have good fortune. So I imagine you could essentially design like a, a you know a, an artist rendering of anything you wanted to. You can kind of have it do whatever you want. Sure. If I was going to do that, what types of universal symbols of protection do you think I should have? The symbol that I would go for would be the Hebrew letter Yod. Yod, um, you can see it represented right here. That was the letter that the Hebrews associated with God. That is a symbol that has been venerated by occult seekers throughout history. I would go with one enormous Yod. One just one big yeah, one. Yeah, anywhere you like. Like an S on my chest. Is yeah, right I here. think that would be your universal sign of protection. Wow. So if you're going to make a tableau, give me three or four that you want. Oh, well, the pentagram is a wonderful image. I'm saving room for the pentagram here. Mm -hmm. I've gotten into the upside-down pentagram recently. A lot of mm -hmm. people think the upside-down pentagram is malevolent, but I think it represents human power, human striving. It represents something that is energetic mm -hmm. and Promethean in the individual. So I like the pentagram, or especially the reversed pentagram. Can I pause you there for a second? So if it's... My, my thought was, and you're going to be the expert on this, is that the symbols being reversed, like an upside down and a cross, was essentially used for blasphemy to kind of like throw your up, middle finger up at the establishment. Now that's kind of true of the pentagram, because the pentagram with one point pointed up is kind of like a, a symbol of the five points of you know nature and everything. Yes, right, right, it's right. rooted in that. So right. flipping it upside down is essentially giving that and like saying it's bad for everyone, right? Is, not, that, is not, that the idea? Not necessarily. We have really early Pythagorean and, and Hebrew and Hellenic examples of the upside down pentagram that were actually created in the pre-Christian era. So it wasn't meant as an FU to the establishment. Hmm. Uh, the pentagram ha has appeared both horns up, so to speak, or reverse, right. as you were referring to, yeah. or in the more traditional way with the one point up, as we see it represented in the modern world. but. I see the upside down pentagram, and this kind of came into vogue more towards modernity as a symbol of the Promethean, as a symbol of uh, man, as a figure of human striving. I think there's a holiness to it. I think there's a greatness to it. I don't see any symbols as maleficent. I don't really see any human symbols as blasphemous. They mean different things to different people, but to me, frankly, they're all beautiful. They're all symbols of humanity's striving to find something greater about itself. I know I'm struggling to think on on cue of a symbol that's specifically for the, the specifically benevolent symbol. Look, you know, some people think that the peace symbol, for example, like this or the cross. Oh, the the, the, the three prong, right. the tripod peace symbol. Yeah. I had a guy stop me on the New York City subway once because I was wearing a shirt 
with the tripod peace symbol, how dare I? Right. And he said that it was a it's a malevolent symbol of a cross reversed and with its arms broken. Uh, and that's absolute nonsense, but people you know have these different applications and these different ideas. Um, but getting onto your symbols of protection, yeah. I don't think there's anything that you can go wrong with, you know, strictly speaking. I do like the all-seeing eye. I have an all-seeing eye over yeah. here. Now that's the Egyptian style. Yeah, that's yeah. the Egyptian style, although it's in tribute to the all-seeing eye that's on the back of our own dollar bill. Right. And this slogan around it, God smiles on our new order of the ages, is a loose translation of the slogan on the back of our dollar bill, which is mm -hmm. annuit septos noos ordo seclorum. God smiles on our new order of the ages is sort of a fanciful uh, iteration of that Latin slogan. Mm -hmm. But to me, that's a good luck symbol. And um, of course, there are many Persian people who see the hand mm -hmm. either upright or reversed with an eye in the center right. as a good luck symbol. That's the good eye or it wards off the evil eye. So you have many to choose from. I okay. think you should really just dive, dive right, right in. in. Yeah. All right. Nice time. Uh, so now, Here's a, so I just did an episode on Jack Parsons. Oh. Now Jack Parsons is a very interesting guy. I recommend checking out that interview. Now in the interview, we, he, there's so much about him. And then this figure. So yeah. we didn't get into figure. the mysticism a lot, which yeah. is a huge, just because when you run out of time. Right. But the, like, it's, that's one third of his life. Right. And I'm sitting here with a mystic expert, mystical niche. <laughs> the, the mystic expert who scratch that mystical itch. And I, I really want to know, this is like a third of this man's life. Yes. It really affected everything that he did. Yeah. And yeah. he was a man of science, which yes. is kind of interesting. Yes. It all kind of started with Aleister Crowley. So yes. we've got a lot to, maybe we can get a lot in here in a short period of time. But let's start with Aleister Crowley, because I think that's really what influenced him. Right. Well, let's talk about Aleister. He's an interesting guy in and of himself. Tremendously. Uh, both Parsons and Crowley were fascinating figures in their way. And Crowley is probably the greatest ceremonial magician in mm. history, probably the best known. He was a British occultist mm. who, in the late 19th, early 20th century, went on his own esoteric search, and he found himself in Cairo, Egypt, in 1904. And in effect, he channeled, so to speak, a brilliant, really extraordinary work called the Book of the Law, which became the statement, the founding work of what we call Thelema, which is mm -hmm. the philosophy of living from your true self, living right. from a sense of higher will. And Crowley made a heroic effort to... Heroic? <laughs> to revive ancient mystery religions. Right. We really possess, to this day, just threads and shards of the mystery religions as they were practiced in Egypt, Greece, Rome, Persia. And so Crowley, and the reason I say this is heroic is because he did it without a map. He did it without a map. Imagine finding yourself right. in Cairo in 1904, being an Englishman, not speaking the language, not having you know the Lonely Planet guide right. or, or ways or whatever right. yeah. waiting for you, and you know trying to make your way through really the wreckage of these ancient cultures now preserved here and there behind museum cases in tourist sites and so forth, some of which hadn't even been excavated yet. And here is this man, along with a few colleagues, who's trying to piece together what were the ancient Egyptians doing? What were the ancient Hermeticists, the Greek Egyptians doing? What was the cult of Thoth, the god of intellect, doing? What were their rituals? What's their magic? Can we revive it? Can we use it? Can we apply it? And that excited a man like Jack Parsons, who in addition to being a jet propulsion scientist, was on a quest to 
combine a spiritual search with the search for personal power. Mm-hmm. And I think we should honor that. I think we should honor that. I, I, I feel that there are two legitimate paths of magic. There are two legitimate paths of religion. One path seeks dissolution of the individual into some sense of essential awareness. That could be called, thy will be done. Another path might be called, my will be done, my will be done. That sometimes is referred to as black magic, in which the individual is seeking personal power for himself. But I don't see how that path can be designated as somehow being illegitimate or not worthy or not real, because what's it tapping into? What's it tapping into? It's seeking those same essential energies. And yes, maybe it is seeking them for self-centered purposes, but we're told that we're created in the image of the higher, in the image of the creator. The individual is made to be productive, is made to be generative, and that's going to take different people down different roads. Mm -hmm. The road Jack chose was, my will be done, my will be done. Hence, he got very interested in a power-seeking figure like Aleister Crowley and a young L. Ron Hubbard, Mm -hmm. Uh, not with happy results, not with happy results. Uh, There was a lot of conflict, there was a lot of individual friction, and of course, he died in a tragic accident, however, uh, if he had it all to do over, I can't peer into another person's thought system, but maybe he would have done the exact same thing because that was his search. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because you talk about these powers kind of, the magic itself that you're talking about has, doesn't have its own, you know, kind of agenda. Result. Yes, right. But right. when filtered through an individual, that's when it's used. And yeah. I think some people would argue that Aleister Crowley's you know, intentions were not the best. He was very right. self-serving. Very self-serving. Um, Absolutely. And he didn't have anyone's best interest in mind besides himself. That is true. And I, and I think that maybe that is kind of what warped people's ideas of him. Yeah. But, but I do, I, you know, and I, I scoffed at the heroic, but I think you might be right because we sometimes lose the, the, the accomplishment yeah. in the person. Yeah. There are lots of people. I mean, look, Hitler created the Volkswagen Buck, which we drive around. Well, <laughs> I'm not saying overshadowed. <laughs> no, but I'm saying yeah. that like there are things that people can do that are worthwhile. Right, and right. In, we forget that. And right. I think Crowley's what you're saying is Crowley's effort to kind of preserve all the stuff is an incredible accomplishment, whether or not he was a great person. Yeah, I think that gets at it. You know, I, I do draw certain lines, and this is where I come down on the question of the individual using magic. Hitler and the Volkswagen Bush. I think that line you crossed it. Yeah. But it's it's a legitimate question, and, yeah. and, and people would be right to sort of demand of me, well, wait a minute, if you're saying nice things about Aleister Crowley, why not Hitler? You know, where right. is that line? And I do draw it, and this is where I come down. Mm-hmm. And I think your description of Aleister is correct. He was a profoundly selfish figure, and he was a dangerous figure. I would yeah. not have been one of his students if I was alive now, right. because a lot of Aleister's students met with very, very bad ends. He was a cruelly narcissistic person. And manipulative. And manipulative. No question about that. At the same time, I say Alistair was heroic because he searched without a map. And he would do things like venture a translation of the Tao Te Ching, for example, struggling through the Chinese character-based language, not really having many other texts to rely upon, and coming up with actually a very decent and in some ways quite beautiful working translation at a time when this literature wasn't available. That was the greatness of Alistair. So where draw the line? You know, where do I draw the line? I would say that I believe intensely in the striving of the individual. I believe and I honor and I venerate the use of magic and the occult for individual ends, but I don't defend those things for violent ends. And what I would describe as violence is 
anything that prevents another individual from developing his or her own highest potential. So that's where I would draw the line, for example, at a figure like Hitler, because I would say he was all about this murderous exclusivity, right. and he prevented people uh, in the most murderous and, 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 and massively expressed bloodthirsty manner of developing their own potential as individuals and communities, of course, by taking their lives. And I would say you could apply that on larger and smaller scales of tragedy, but I have only a line to draw, only a line to draw, when I think the individual is doing something to disrupt another person's expression of his or her own highest aspiration, either as a person or as a community. That's where I feel uh, violence enters the equation. And I believe in nonviolent striving, by which I don't mean passivity, or I don't mean a rejection of self-defense, but I mean not violating another person's ability to attain his or her own highest potential. That's where, that's where my mind is strong. That's fair enough. Now, I will say, just as a counter-argument, uh, that Crowley did stop people from achieving in a lot of his organizations. Right. So he stepped in their way. Now, whether it was violent, I think that that's tricky. It's fuzzy with him. It's fuzzy. I would say that Crowley left a trail of regrets and broken people and hurt people and sometimes dead people in his path. There was a cruelty to the man. At the same time, many of his students willingly entered into relationships with him, and some of them, like his secretary, Israel Regardi, exited relationships with him. So the individual did have to make some of his or her own decisions in that case. So it's a gray area. I see him as a heroic and great intellect, a great artist, a great performance artist, a great spiritual pioneer. I also see him as somebody who I wouldn't have consented uh, to be a student of. Right, fair enough. And what was kind of interesting about him is you mentioned him as being the greatest ceremonial magician. Yeah, yeah. What's kind of cool about that is what got Jack Parsons interested in this world was the Gnostic Mass. 1939, yes. he was introduced to that. Yeah. Can you explain that? And then also, maybe in that explanation, people, you know, people who are watching or listening will understand what was kind of intriguing about it. Well, Jack was a scientist, as we were discussing, and, and, and he raised the question of whether there could be a technology of mysticism, a technology of magic, so to speak. And in discovering things like the Gnostic Mass and certain hermetic ideas, he was discovering a method of spiritual searching, and in some cases, in some cases, a method of spellcasting that went back to this very early time in human history where the ancient pagan powers and the newborn Christian powers were in something of a struggle for dominance over the ancient mind. And he wanted to know what had been lost, what had been retained, and could we take certain ceremonies, rites, rituals from the late ancient world? And I say late ancient because it was only then that some of these things passed out of oral tradition mm -hmm. and actually got written down in Greek or Aramaic, could we take these things and work with them in the same way that he would work with principles of rocketry, that he would work with Einstein's equations, and could we get a repeatable, reliable mm -hmm. result? That was his passion, that was his quest. Right. Yeah, and it's kind of interesting because it really, because one of the interesting points people make is that he compartmentalized science and magic 
but essentially they were both sides of the same coin. Yes. And, and, he, and people, you know, overquote. I think it's Carl Sagan who says that any significantly advanced technology right. will look to you know people like magic. And I think in some ways it's kind of interesting that he was really looking to see how could these things that seem impossible, yeah. how can they become reality? So I think that there are points, there's a point in people's lives, usually between 9 and 13, mm -hmm. and I think events that happen during that moment yes. really kind of spin you out. Critical. Because you, like you're kind of like going like this, because I can think of things that happened to me that kind of set me on my path. Yeah. Like, and form the way you think. And one of the things that happened in his early life was he performed a ritual mm -hmm. and kind of in, in his mind or, you know, really kind of struck upon something, really summoned a demon or some kind of entity. Yeah. And I think the ability to do that or even the perception of doing that yes. really kind of pushed yep. him on that path. Yep. Uh, what do you think happened and has it ever happened to you? Is yes, it, it, it has as a matter of fact. And it wow. happened specifically at age nine. Specifically. <laughs> yeah, really? Yep. Uh, I was growing up in the great borough of Queens in New York City, and I used to love to visit the Bellrose Public Library, town we grew up in, mm -hmm. and I would take out books of mysticism, superstition, folklore, and one day I took out from the public library a book of Pennsylvania Dutch folklore, and it had in it, in this two-page spread, this pentagram-like diagram with all kinds of little fortunes written around it, and the principle here was that you were supposed to close your eyes, hover a pin mm -hmm. above the diagram, bring the pin down, and that would tell your fortune. So here I am at the age of nine, and of course I go get a pin from my mother's sewing kit, of course. hover it, bring it down, and I bring it down on the words, a letter, a letter. The next day, this is an absolutely true story, the next day, a letter arrives to the house, with my name, and being nine years old, I didn't get many letters. Right, yeah, right, yeah. And it is from the New York Public Library. It's an overdue book notice. And <laughs> if it was not for that book, I'd love to be able to tell you it's for that very book, yeah. but I'll never embellish stories. It was Thank not you. for that book, but I was struck by it. I was yeah. struck by it. And it just made me say, at the <laughs> age of nine, what, what is out there? What is out there? You know, I would look at daily newspaper astrology columns, for example. Yeah. And I knew that whether somebody was making this stuff up, whether it was reliable, whether it wasn't, it was based on ancient principles. These symbols of Jupiter and Mars and the constellations of Sagittarius and Virgo, these things weren't invented. These were part of an ancient religious system. Right. What is it? What was it? And how did it reach me in the borough of Queens? And yeah. that began my quest. I knew that there were mysteries in our lives that we took for granted every single day. And they had deep roots that really brought us back to pagan antiquity. And I wanted to peel back the layers of that onion. I wanted to know where it all led. And that was at the age of nine. That's so crazy. So you had an experience like that, and that yeah. kind of sent you down your path. So you can kind of understand how this can happen. Oh, for sure, absolutely. And you're absolutely right on, between nine and 13, it's such a uniquely impressionable age in every way. I also remember my sister bringing me home from school the paperbacks of Carlos Castaneda when I was probably, oh, maybe I was about 10 years old, and I was reading Castaneda, and I absolutely fell into it. And I was just recently in the city of Denver, and I found an original complete set of Carlos's paperbacks from that exact time in my life. And they're here with me now. I'm reading them on the airplane. <laughs> I'm rereading them on this trip. Yeah. And I was just so aroused with his vision and his relationship with his sorcerer mentor of Don Juan. And of course, today everybody says 
and they're correct. You know, the historicity of the books is all mixed up. Carlos was inventing this stuff. Yes and no. Yes and no. He was another one of these figures like Aleister Crowley around whom no simple explanation will ever fit. You'll never get your arms mm. around a figure like Carlos Castaneda if you say he was just a fraud. He was inventing a backdrop, but within that backdrop was extraordinary wisdom and insights about human nature that came from somewhere. I don't know where, but the validity of Carlos's observations, and I've had this discussion with many people on the path, is absolutely extraordinary, even if the names and dates and geography don't match up. It came from somewhere, it came from somewhere. So I was, I was bitten with that bug at age nine, 10, and I've never looked back in a sense. That's so funny. I mean, because it's kind of interesting when you look at how, I think one of the things, both Jack Parsons' occult background singles him out as being kind of incredibly unique, mm -hmm. but it also is shunned him from any scientific community because rarely oh. does science and mysticism go rarely. hand in hand. Yeah. Except yeah. in the old days when mysticism was science. Although interestingly enough, right, except in the old days, I mean, our chemistry comes from alchemy, right. astronomy yeah. comes from astrology and so on. Um, and our calendrics, you know, our calendar system, of course, comes from uh, systems of worshiping the planets and, and, and seasonal rituals. I, I would say this, interestingly enough, within academia, you will actually find more opening to mysticism within the hard sciences than you will within the humanities. Because within the humanities, very often, and I don't want to generalize, but not infrequently, there is a kind of postmodern, materialist, prevailing point of view that says, you know, our whole world is illusory and it needs to be explained by various philosophies and power structures and deconstruction of language, whereas in the sciences, the nature of what our world is just keeps deepening and deepening in terms of the question that exists around the behavior of matter, the behavior of particles, the nature of space, right. even the existence of infinity. So when you talk to people who are dealing with physics and mathematics at very complex theoretical levels, yes, their job is to calculate, and they're extraordinary at it, but the more they calculate, the more they find life behaving with a certain degree of surreality, and they're willing mm -hmm. to have discussions with people who are interested in metaphysics, sometimes at a much richer level than people in the humanities are. So we think of there being a fissure between the mystical and the scientific, and yet it's the scientific that puts us in front of deeper and deeper yeah. questions about the behavior of matter, the appearance of matter, and there's a willingness to engage there frequently. Well, it's kind of funny because the more we learn about science, right? Like, yeah. you know, Newtonian science is pretty self-explanatory. It's right. very easy to understand, oh, that explains science. Right. As we start breaking it down and we start talking about quantum yeah. physics, yeah. I don't know anything that's more like mysticism than quantum physics. It's it doesn't make any sense. It's, right. It doesn't hold any real scientific value. Right. But yet it all can be proven true. It's truly mysticism. It's, it's absolutely it's full circle. extraordinary. It's, it's a full circle. And um, I think it was uh, not Niels Bohr who said the only people who don't uh, know what's going on in quantum physics are the people who think that they know what's going on. Right. You know, yeah. I, I, and I realize, and I'm very, very aware that science journalists emit a collective groan when people like me talk about quantum physics because they think to themselves, oh boy, here comes the quantum woo-woo, here comes right. the guy cherry-picking 
ideas from quantum theory that are only dimly understood by scientists themselves. And I understand the frustration, and I dig their frustration, but they mustn't allow their frustration to close off a conversation about physics and metaphysics, because what we've seen in the past 80 years of particle experiments has been a demonstration of surreality. It's been objects appearing in multiple places at once, infinite places at once, changing positions based on the decision of an observer. Objects are not supposed to behave this way. We know how chairs behave, and we know how apples behave, thanks to, thanks to Newton, and we know how rockets and velocity functions, thanks to Einstein and others. We even know how time bends, thanks to Einstein, which is surreal enough. Right. But what we found in the past 80 years of quantum physics experiments is that particles behave according to laws that are exceptions from Newtonian mechanics. And laws, by their very definition, are supposed to be true all the time. If something is an exception to a law, then it's not a law. So it, it's a law that you know, I'm sitting here and you're sitting there and that you know there's solid floorboards beneath our feet. If you drop something, if there's no friction, you know, it will drop at such and such a pace. Those laws have been violated. Mm -hmm. And we're finding that objects separated by vast distances are affecting one another. Uh, a, 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 a subatomic particle can appear in more than one mm. places at, at once, and in fact must. Wave functions right. collapse into particle functions, and objects on the subatomic scale are localized only when somebody looks. We mustn't allow, and I say we, speaking of people of letters, journalists, scientists, critical observers, we mustn't allow our frustration with New Age folk, and I don't use New Age in a negative way, New Age folk wanting to cherry pick these ideas to say, oh look, we really do live in a mental universe to shut down a public popular discussion about how fantastic this material is because it is going to redefine our conceptions of being human in this generation, I think, as much as the theory of evolution redefined the Victorian conception of what it meant to be human. It's, it's monumental. No, I totally agree. And Mr. Mitch, you're, you're rounding the corner here because you're going right down the path. Because here's here's the conclusion of what I want to talk yeah, about. Yeah, it's really interesting. Going back to Jack Parsons, because yep. this is all actually on the same path. Yeah. So you had Aleister Crowley, the mystic. Yeah. You have Jack Parsons, the scientist. Right. Hanging out with them, which yeah. this is what's crazy, is a guy named L. Ron Hubbard, Hubbard. who successfully grafted the two concepts you're talking about mysticism and science into Scientology. How did that happen, and how is he more successful than the two people before him? Well, <laughs> Hubbard is a tough issue. Hubbard is a tough issue. Right. Um, I'm not trying to get the Scientology no, out no, of you. No, 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 it's fine. I mean, I, I say the they're same They're in town. You're in things. town, they're in town. I say we'll the same things in public as I say in private. I have no problem with Hubbard's theology, and I have no problem whatsoever with the theology of the Church of Scientology. In fact, I'm happy to dialogue with them about it. I do have a problem with the way the Church behaves ethically in sure. the world today, because it demonstrates a tremendous and unnecessary degree of aggression towards its critics, and I disapprove of that. And I think that that was part and parcel of Hubbard's early uh, philosophy, at least mm -hmm. organizationally speaking. Mm -hmm. um, Hubbard has also, well, not Hubbard, but his his uh, uh, his inheritors have also attempted to 
distanced themselves from some of the occult material. Hubbard, like Parsons, was also looking for a technology of the spirit. He was looking for a technology of behavior. He was looking for a psychology of results. And I think when he was a young man, I think he was very sincere about all this stuff. I know for a fact that he exchanged letters very sincerely on the topic of reincarnation, for example, with the father of a good friend of mine. So there was a sincerity in his search. At a certain point, it went in the direction of consolidating an organization and exercising power and squashing critics in a manner that I personally disapprove of. Um, but I think that he was, for a time, uh, united with Parsons and indirectly, indirectly with Crowley for a, 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 a search for, again, a technology of the spirit, kind of a replicable, repeatable, reliable set of protocols that combined insights of spirituality and psychology and that could um, improve human agency. I think in his most idealistic phase, in his youngest phase, that's what he was interested in. And one of the cool things that people say about that is there is an almost a Gnostic feel to the the idea of thetas and the, the idea that we have, you know, yeah. Gnosticism, we have a divine spark in us yeah. and that the thetas are the divine spark of, you know, I think that's true. Back. I think that's true. And again, I want to emphasize, I have no issue whatsoever with the Scientology as a theology. It's something I'd be very happy to have a dialogue over because I think you're correct. I think there is an intersection with Gnosticism, the idea that we are not living the life we think we're living. We're not living the life we're supposed to be living. The Gnostics, uh, who were somewhat somewhat populous in the um, biblical lands in the decades immediately following Christ, felt in some cases that we were living under a false god, that we were living under a kind of evil god, and that this false creator, this ersatz creator, uh, needed to be kind of dissolved away by human insight, human knowing, gnosis. Yeah. And we needed to realize uh, the true nature of human creation and human possibility. So that ancient concern and that perspective that we're not living the lives we think we're living shows up in many different places. You find that in Christian science. You find it in movies like The Matrix. You find it um, in certain expressions like Scientology. Let me ask you one question that should wrap everything up. Yeah. When it comes to Scientology, did it, it, it seems to me like it's almost like an equation, like Aleister Crowley plus Parsons equals Scientology in a way. I don't know if that's true or not. I wouldn't put it that way, but, but, but I'll, I'll go with it. But it's kind of interesting because I, I want to know, like, why do you think Scientology took off in a way that even Crowley's philosophy didn't, mm -hmm. and Jack Parsons even kind of started his own kind of religion that didn't go anywhere. Mm -hmm. But how do you think he was so successful combining these two? Well, it responded to a need. I think most people walk around with the sense that they possess greater faculties than they've been able to access. And I think anyone who is able to approach the individual and affirm that and say, yes, you know, your, your instinct is correct. You're not leading the full life that you ought to be leading. And we have a system that can strip away these layers of psychological detritus that are holding you back and allow your authentic self and your full abilities as an artist, as a professional, as a parent, as a person in relationships to come out, that answers a very deep need. And I think that need was felt by ancient seekers. I think you'll find that need expressed within Hermeticism, the Egyptian Greek philosophy. You'll find that need expressed within Gnosticism. 
You'll find that need expressed within Renaissance occultism. And you find that need expressed today in all kinds of, 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 of sectors of human life. And I think that um, he was simply able to tap that, that very deeply felt need and, and find a way of, of addressing it that I think people felt was systematic and, and held out possibilities for. Well, it's an incredible story, and I think really, when it comes to mysticism, people can kind of be confused. I know probably people watching are a little curious, well, how does this work? But I think- <laughs> Come tonight. Yeah, yeah, come tonight. Right. Uh, or tomorrow. Uh, or tomorrow, get the answers. But I think you know you do a really good, you have a, a great knowledge base to be able to look at modern kind of theories, make them digestible. Uh, and I think, especially with Parsons, it gets very confusing, but it's super interesting to know how a guy like that, I mean, the belief, it's this weird belief that the type of mysticism is this evil kind of weird thing, or yeah. weirdo yeah. to that. But there's real hidden universal truths that I think people kind of latch onto, and, and I think you explained it very well. And thanks for breaking down Jack Parsons. Uh, it's, he's a guy who, you know, it yeah. takes a while to do, so thank you. Thank you. Great to speak with you. Yeah, thank you. Fascinating Nouns is a Glencoe production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. A big thank you to Sarah Brandt, the show producer, for putting this one together and making it all work, uh, truly making it serendipity instead of just regular old plain run-of-the-mill luck. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. Look for this particular interview on YouTube, the YouTube channel, youtube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn for a little snippet if you want to see this in person. Or you can go to the Fascinating Nouns webpage and look at the social media links at the bottom. You can find links to Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, all that stuff at the bottom, as well as this week's guest, last week's guest to catch up. The previous interview with Mitch Horowitz will also be there. All that stuff, fascinatingnouns.com. And if you like this show, there is a great chance you'll love my other stuff, including my most recent podcast, Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies, where I sit down with a panel of experts, including uh, rocket scientist Ben Siebser, friend of the show, Dr. Michael Denon, superhero scientist, and we discuss how to make fictional science a reality, F triplegbt.com, and you can find everything that I do on danieljglenn.com. Thank you for listening. End of transmission.